Let's pray together. Uh, God, thank you for this morning. Lord, for another day to live in relationship with you. Lord, to experience your goodness. God, thank you for Christ, who is a magnificent, merciful, loving, gracious, kind Savior. God, thank you that he lifts the lowly. God, that he meets us where we are. God, I pray that as we're continuing our time in worship this morning, whether in your word or in song or in prayer, God, I got to pray that our hearts would just kind of melt in the majesty of who Jesus is. God, that we would see him as better than anything else. God, that we would cling to and cherish him like the author of Hebrews says, Lord, that we would pay attention to him. God, would all that we do over our time together be focused on you? Lord, would you be the center? God, press out any distractions that we might have, Lord, so that we can just rest in your presence, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to be in the first four verses of Hebrews 2 this morning. And as you get situated, I want to introduce you to someone, and then we're going to come back to them uh, over the course of the sermon this morning. And that person, uh, Kurt told me that I should name this person Bob. Uh, Bob loves Oceans of Fun. In fact, Bob loves just one thing at Oceans of Fun, and that is the Lazy River. Bob is not interested in the slides at Oceans of Fun. He's not interested in the wave pool at Oceans of Fun. Bob doesn't take his kids to Oceans of Fun because Oceans of Fun is Bob time. Bob just wants to sit in one of those like double tubes on the Lazy River, stretch his legs out, kind of lay back and just bask in the warmth of the sun, let it kind of just like wash over him. You know that feeling when it's not overly hot, but it's just warm and like you're, it like feels good on your skin? That's what Bob likes. But there's also the coolness of the water, and he just wants to kind of drift around and pass hours away on the lazy river. One particular day, Bob shows up to Oceans of Fun. He grabs his double tube. He plops it down into the lazy river. He jumps on, and he starts to kind of float down. And he realizes, or he kind of notices that more so than any given day where there's usually like one 12-year-old boy who's insistent upon running against the current or swimming against the current and smashing into everybody on their tubes, there are a lot of people doing that this particular day. And Bob can't really figure out what that's all about, but he's trying to press it aside because it's Bob time, right? And these people are not going to distract me. Unbeknownst to Bob, on this particular day, something has happened there at Oceans of Fun, and uh, somewhere along the way on the Lazy River, a massive hole has opened up. And as tubes arrive at that portion of the Lazy River, they're just tipping over down into this giant hole. Keep Bob in mind, all right? We'll come back, we'll come back to him. Read Hebrews, 1, or Hebrews 2, 1 to 4 with me. For this reason, we must pay attention all the more to what we have heard so that we will not drift away. 
For if the message spoken through angels was legally binding and every transgression and disobedience received a just punishment, how will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? This salvation had its beginning when it was spoken of by the Lord and it was confirmed to us by those who heard him. At the same time, God also testified by signs and wonders, various miracles and distributions of gifts from the Holy Spirit according to his will. One of Uh, my primary goals as we go through this Hebrews series is to take what's often kind of complicated in Hebrews and try to make things as clear as possible without sacrificing on any of the depth of what the author of Hebrews gives us. And what makes Hebrews a little bit more complicated than maybe other epistles in the New Testament is that we're used to predominantly reading Paul, who is very like logical and linear and organized in the way that he sets up his books. His letters. And so you can generally follow from point A in one verse or one section straight to point B, straight to point C, and the line just kind of makes sense. In Hebrews, oftentimes, you've got to read a section and then step backward and take a bigger look at the whole thing. This is the first time that we have to do that, where the strain of thought, which actually began in chapter 1 and then arrives in chapter 2, isn't necessarily linear verses 1 through 4 in chapter 2, this first paragraph. And so what I want to do here is try to lay this out as clearly as possible, uh, work our way through it somewhat quickly, maybe quicker than we normally would on a Sunday morning, because the primary thrust of this passage is pastoral. And so I want to spend a decent amount of time kind of having a conversation, uh, me and you, if you will. So here's the main point this morning that the author of Hebrews is trying to make, that the danger of drifting from the gospel includes real, just, and eternal consequences. Let me just read this again. For this reason, we must pay attention all the more to what we have heard, so that we will not drift away. For if the message spoken through the angels was legally binding, and every transgression and disobedience received just punishment... How will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? This salvation had its beginning when it was spoken of by the Lord, and it was confirmed to us by those who heard him. At the same time, God also testified by signs and wonders, various miracles and distributions of gifts from the Holy Spirit according to his will. Let's just put kind of the logic in order, starting in Hebrews chapter 1 and working through these four verses. Christ is supreme. That was all of chapter 1. Therefore, Paul says, or the author says, pay attention. Pay attention. Do not neglect. That would be the opposite of paying attention, would be to neglect. And if you do, there's judgment. We're just going to work through those four pieces and how we see them in the text. The first piece, Christ is supreme, that's actually a review of the last two weeks. The author showed eight aspects of Jesus' magnificent nature, that he's the matchless son of God, that he's the culmination of God's revealing of himself. He's eternal creator. He's going to inherit all things. He sustains all things. He is the radiance of God's glory. He's the exact expression of God's nature. And because he made sacrifice for sin one time and sat down at the right hand of God, he has finalized sacrifice. Eight aspects of Jesus' nature. And as if... That's not enough. The author then goes on and says, and here are eight different ways that he's superior to the angels who are maybe like kind of the the most magnificent heavenly beings that you could ever think of. His name is greater. His name is Son. 
Angel means messenger. His glory is greater. Jesus is worshipped. The angels worship. His role is greater. He accomplishes God's will. The angels assist God's will. His rule is greater. He's going to sit on his throne forever and ever. The angels have this temporary superiority, which we'll come back to in a couple of weeks. His holiness is greater because he is perfect. He has loved righteousness, hated lawlessness all of his days, whereas the angels are capable of sin and therefore are unpredictable. His nature is greater. He's eternal. Angels are immortal. They've got a starting place. They were created. Jesus was not. His position is greater. He sits on the throne. The angels are around the throne. And his ministry is greater. He is the Savior. Angels are servants. In light of all that, the author says, therefore, for this reason, we must pay attention. Primarily, the author's linking back to the opening paragraph. How do we know that? For this reason, we must pay attention all the more to what we have heard. How did the author start? Long ago, God spoke in different times, or in different ways and at different times. In these days, he has spoken by his son. And so the author says, if that's the case, and Jesus is as magnificent as we've just described, therefore... We've got to do something with who Jesus is, and that's something that we should do is pay attention. That's the first command in the book of Hebrews. In fact, it's the most common command in the book of Hebrews. It takes different forms. Here we see it as pay attention. In other places, the author will say, watch out, fix your eyes upon, consider Jesus, look to Jesus. That's rooted in the theological truths about who Jesus is, as stated above, and as he's going to continue to state below. The encouragement is pay attention. That's not complicated. We know how to do that. It doesn't require a, like, a bunch of application points about how to pay attention. Like if the author had told us to rebuild a transmission, that would require some instructions. But he just says, pay attention. We know what it is to pay attention. In fact, what the author actually says is pay attention all the more or pay great attention or give attentive attention to Jesus. That idiom, pay attention, we use that intentionally because to give attention to one thing costs you. That's because in order to pay attention to one specific thing, you've got to rule out all the other things that you could give your attention to at any given moment. You come home from work, your kids come home from school, whatever the case might be, you're going to set aside that evening. There are no sports practices, you don't have to go anywhere, your small group doesn't meet that night, and so that is family time. Two, three, four hours, however much time you've got in the evening. And it's going to cost you all the other things that you could be doing in order to pay attention to your family. There's a cost associated there. And the author says, this is the most important thing. Nothing else is worth more. You should be willing to pay any price to pay attention to Jesus. And here are the reasons you should do it. There are four of them. The first one goes back to Hebrews 1.1. God spoke long ago at different times and in different ways. The second one, and this is where things start to get a little bit out of order, is actually at the end of verse 3. How will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? This salvation had its beginning when it was spoken of by the Lord. Literally, when it was spoken of in the Lord. That's about Jesus. Jesus revealed this. 
God has spoken one message since the beginning of time, and it is about the greatness of who he is and the reality that we should give all of our affection to him, that nothing else should capture our hearts and our minds and our eyes in the same way that he does. God has spoken about it in different times and in different ways, and he's revealed it in Jesus. And then in verse 4, at the same time, God also testified by signs and wonders, various miracles and distributions of gifts from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit testifies to that same message. We're going to give the entire sermon to just that verse next week. But as a brief kind of overview, the author tells us that the Holy Spirit works powerfully in order to testify to the greatness of God and the reality of the gospel through signs and wonders and miracles and spiritual gifts. For the sake of today's message, what is worth pointing out is that the entire Trinity is present here. What's one of the reasons why you should pay attention to this man, Jesus? Because he has been revealed by the entire Trinity. God has spoken about his greatness. Jesus has revealed it himself and the Holy Spirit has testified. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And as if that's not enough, there's one more. This salvation had its beginning when it was spoken of by the Lord and it was confirmed to us by those who heard him. Those are the apostles who heard Jesus speak. They bear witness to the, re- to the reality of the greatness of who Jesus is. In fact, they were willing to give their lives for it. To go back to our friend Bob, who's just kind of mindlessly bobbing along on the lazy river. Bob, pay attention, dude. Figure out why it is that these people are swimming upstream. Shake yourself out of your relaxed state in order to ask a question to figure out what exactly is going on. Bob, on the other hand, would rather neglect. That's the opposite of paying attention. How will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? That's the start of verse 3. What matters is that To neglect is the opposite to give attention. To neglect would be to have no concern for something, to just be like without a care about it. Think apathy. Bob can't even be troubled to look ahead at what might be coming down the lazy river. He has no interest in asking the person who's wrestling to swim the other direction why they're doing that. He's laid back on his tube. His face is warm in the sun. His toes are bouncing in the water. He's humming quietly to himself, thinking about how great everything seems, and he's got no idea that there is a giant crater waiting for his tube to just kind of drift down into. When we stop paying attention to Jesus and the truth of the gospel, we end up neglecting the gospel. And the real danger of neglecting the gospel is that we will drift away from it. Pay attention all the more to what we have heard so that we will not drift away. The image on that drift away word is nautical. Think of a boat out in just the vastness of the ocean. There are two ways for that boat to end up in the wrong location. Number one would be to just steer willfully the wrong way. Just make a decision. Instead of going to where I'm supposed to be, I'm going to go a little bit this way and end up way off course. The other would be to shut the motor off, pull the sails down, take the oars in, whatever the case might be, and just let the tide kind of carry you. That's the image here, that you would just drift somewhere. Another way to think of it would be to think of a boat that's anchored offshore. 
and that anchor comes loose or it breaks off, and it isn't going to be long before that boat is either no longer in sight because it's drifted so far away or it's crashed itself on the shore. It may happen slowly. It may not even be perceptible at first, but it will drift with the tide. That is what the author of Hebrews is warning his readers about, drifting slowly from the gospel. The world we live in is not a pond. Right? It's not in danger of going stagnant like the pond that's outside of Montclair right there at Flintlock and 96th Street that gets so green it looks like you could walk across it. The world we live in is not that. It's got a current. It's more like a river. And that current is headed one direction and one direction only. And that means there is no standing still. You cannot be idle and in one place. You're either swimming your way upstream or you're drifting to wherever it is that that current heads. And the author tells us where that current is. That current results in judgment. Verse 2. For if the message spoken through the angels was legally binding and every transgression and disobedience received a just punishment, how will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? He's making an argument from lesser to greater. In fact, it comes right out of what he just did at the, uh, the back half of chapter 1. If you're someone who wants to go back and look at this, you can jot it down. Put down Galatians 3.19 in Acts 7 verse 53. In those two places, we're told that the angels played a role in mediating the old covenant to Moses on the mountain. They're messengers, remember. They had a part in mediating the law to Moses. And the author of Hebrews says, if there was punishment for neglecting that, and Jesus is greater than angels, and he mediated a new covenant to us, why would we expect anything different if we disobey what he's given us? Why would we expect that there would be no judgment with this covenant of grace if we disobey it, that has been mediated by Jesus, when there was punishment under the covenant of the law that was mediated by the angels? Jesus' death on the cross has saved us. There is punishment, and he's saved us from something real and something concrete. What Jesus' death on the cross has saved us from is just, righteous, and holy judgment from a just, righteous, and holy God. The Bible, throughout Scripture, gives various descriptions of the nature of God's judgment. In Hebrews, we've already had a picture of it. One of the struggles that we have in reading modern translations of the Bible is that we get these different section headings and these large breaks in our text where they start a new chapter or something. So we kind of forget what was up top. Like we don't pay attention to what was in chapter one because there was a big gap in number two and so it feels like something new. But in Hebrews 1.13, the author actually gave us a picture of what judgment is going to be like. To which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool? The answer to that question is none, but to the Son, he has said that. What is that image? Make your enemies your footstool. One day, not only is every knee going to bow to Jesus, but he is going to display himself as conqueror over all those who have opposed him. It was customary for a defeated king to prostrate himself and kiss the feet of his conqueror. 
And on the flip side, the conqueror would take his foot and put it on his captive's neck to demonstrate his superiority. I've conquered you. I've captured you. That's where we get the phrase, step on their neck. Like we use that in sports sometimes. Your team's up seven. You've got the ball late in the game. You want to drive down for one more touchdown. Why? Just step on their neck. Put an end to it. That's where that image comes from. That's the image of what Christ is going to do to all those who have opposed him. You think to yourself, wow, that seems kind of harsh. Like, are you really opposed to Christ if you just never put your faith in Jesus? That seems hard. But all who love their sin and live in their sin are opposed to Jesus. That's what sin is. It's to live in opposition to God, and the result is that they will be conquered. Jesus sits at the right hand of God, and he will make his enemies his footstool. Such is the punishment for those who, in the context of Hebrews 2, 1 to 4, don't pay attention to the gospel, neglect such a great salvation, and ultimately drift away. To revisit our lazy river friend one more time, float along far enough, and there's only one result for Bob. He'll tip into the hole. That's, that's the text. Step back and see what the author's doing. Chapter 1, verse 1, down to chapter 2, verse 4. There's the line of thought. And it screams one question. One really important pastoral question. Who's the drifter? Who's Bob? Who's the man or the woman drifting along, neglecting such a great salvation, in danger of judgment. Let's start with what we know. The letter of Hebrews, or the sermon of Hebrews, was delivered to a church. A church made up of predominantly Jewish heritage individuals who profess faith in Christ. At the very least... That means that the author is addressing a group of people who would claim that they are Christians. And that means we can rule out two individuals as to the nature or the identity of the drifter. Number one, it's obviously not to someone who's openly opposed to the gospel. They wouldn't have received the letter. On the other side, the drifter is obviously not someone who is genuinely saved. They have no danger of facing just punishment. That's been absorbed for them by Jesus. It leaves us in this precarious middle position. It has to mean that the drifter is someone who thinks they're not drifting. The drifter has to be someone who thinks they are, in fact, saved, and yet they're not. This topic, the topic of the perseverance of a believer is one that runs its way through the entire book of Hebrews. We're going to come back to it at different times. This morning, I don't think what we primarily need to be thinking about is that the drifter is someone who needs to be reminded to hold fast in their faith. I don't think the question this morning is, can I lose my salvation? The question this morning is, have you ever been saved?
Have you ever been saved? The drifter is someone who needs to come to faith. The drifter is someone who maybe professes to know Jesus, but has never actually possessed for themselves the grace of Jesus. The drifter is someone who could probably do a fairly good job of describing Jesus, but they're not actually a disciple of Jesus. To root ourselves in Hebrews chapter 2, the drifter has never actually experienced the wondrous glory of this, quote, great salvation. I want to tell you the story of one of the titans of Christian history, Augustine. In 386 AD, Augustine, who was 32 years old at the time, came into contact with writings about Jesus for the first time. For a few years before that, he had identified himself with a sect of Christianity that adhered to a false gospel, and so it was no gospel at all. One of Augustine's biographers had written, quote, The encounter did nothing less than shift the center of gravity in Augustine's life. He was no longer identified with his false image of God, for he had just encountered the reality of Jesus, who was utterly transcendent. In the seminal work of Augustine's life, the Confessions, he reflects on his salvation quite a bit. And at one point he says this, Up to that point, I had my back to the light, and my face was turned toward the things which it illuminated, so that though I saw the things which stood in the light, I myself was still in darkness. That, in my estimation, is the drifter. probably sitting in a church most Sundays, eyes fixed on the things which the light of Christ illuminates, but having never looked for themselves into the face of the Savior. Before I talk more about that individual, I want to give some encouragement to believers. The author's intent in the book of Hebrews is never to make genuine believers question whether or not they're saved. In fact, that should be a joyful process that believers go through. 1 John tells us to test our salvation, to examine whether or not we're in the faith. That's a healthy exercise. Jude, verse 24 says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory without blemish and with great joy. The same grace that called you into relationship with Jesus will carry you in relationship with Jesus until you're collected into the presence of Jesus for all of eternity. That's the nature of grace. Calls you, carries you, will one day collect you. There's no fear in having somehow lost hold of that. Let me tell you why. You were never the one who did something to grab hold of it anyway. If that were the case, then maybe there would be a chance that you could somehow sli- it could slip out of your hands, but that's not the case. God, in Jesus, grabbed hold of you, and He cannot let go. He never will. You will not slip out of His grasp. And so if you're sitting here this morning, and you are thinking to yourself, yes, like I feel some sense of assurance inside myself. That's the presence of the Holy Spirit. 
that has sealed you for all of eternity, assuring you of your relationship with Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit in a believer could be doing something on the other side. There's a difference between drifting away from the gospel and being distracted in our walk with Jesus. And when we are distracted, we need the Holy Spirit to convict us. To use the words of Tom Nelson, one of the sure signs that you are born again is that you feel pricked by this. A rising desire in your heart to return your eyes to Jesus and consider Him and listen to Him in the days and months and years to come. There's a difference between maybe being a little stagnant in your faith and needing to be saved. One of the sure ways you can know which side of that you fall on is to ask yourself the question, when my sin is brought to light, am I defensive or repentant? Holy Spirit leads us to repentance. And so maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking to yourself, maybe I'm not at this moment in my life doing a great job of paying attention to Jesus, but you feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit there. Don't fear that you're somehow losing hold of your salvation, but be obedient to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. The same God who created, sustains, and inherits the universe has called, will carry, and will collect those who are His. Take heart, there's nothing to fear. Now, what about those who are drifting? How do you know if that's you? You remember... I can't remember, early 2000s or something, Jeff Foxworthy and his, like, you might be a redneck if jokes. You might be a redneck if you think fast food is hitting a deer at 65 miles an hour. All right, I've got your attention again. You might be a drifter if. If your testimony of faith begins with the words, I've always been a Christian. Hear me say lovingly and gently, but firmly. You very well may be a drifter. No one came out of the womb professing faith in Jesus Christ as their all-sufficient Savior. You were not born recognizing your own sin, confessing it and repenting it and receiving God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, you might have grown up in a home where your parents did a fantastic job of shining the light of the gospel on everything in your life. But like Augustine, there you stood, back to the Savior, face to the light. And you never once have actually turned around and seen the face of the Savior for yourself. Like the author of Hebrews, I would plead with you, don't drift. Don't drift. That has one outcome. Pay attention for yourself to the truth of the gospel. See Jesus in all of his wonderful, magnificent, radiant beauty and take hold of him for yourself. You might be a drifter if the deepest source of joy in your life is something other 
than Jesus. Let me tell you how you can know if this is the case. One of the most confusing things in the first century for those who were watching the church was the fact that in the face of great suffering, great trial, and great perseverance, followers of Jesus still had joy. It's because whatever was happening around them could not take that away. Their soul's deepest joy was not in anything that the world had to offer. And the world has plenty of good gifts. God's given us great things. But to root our happiness and our joy in those rather than in Jesus shows that we have not ever truly seen Christ for who he is and are therefore drifting. If you try to root all of your joy in the comfort that your lifestyle provides for you, then anytime that comfort gets challenged, your very identity will feel threatened. If you try to root yourself in your ultimate joy and stake your soul's ultimate happiness upon the well-being of your children, which is a, a fantastic gift that God has given us, then as soon as something seems amiss in the life of those kids, to your very core, you will feel threatened. You stake yourself and all of your joy upon Jesus, and there you find ultimate rest. Augustine, again, Loving God is being so satisfied in God and so delighted in all that He is for us that all things pale in comparison. The root of all Christian living is the triumphant joy in God that dethrones the sovereignty of all lesser things that often hold sway in our hearts. God is the harbor in which our soul finds its ultimate joy and its ultimate rest. And so my question for you this morning Have you anchored yourself in the harbor of God's love? Or are you drifting somewhere else? That drift might be ever so slow. You come into church and you're looking at the things of Jesus and you've been looking at them for a long time staring into the harbor, seeing the light of those things, but you are drifting by all the while. You've never actually turned the ship into the harbor, thrown the anchor of Jesus Christ, which Hebrews is going to tell us, He is the anchor for our souls, down into the water and let Him hold you fast there in the love of God. You've never done that. And the author of Hebrews is begging you to pay attention. I'm begging you. Pay attention. Are you looking at all the things that the dawning of God's glory shines light upon and yet never actually looking at the Savior? If so, you're drifting. I want to close with this. John Piper tells a story. His dad uh, was like an itinerant preacher. He would go from city to city and they would do like old you know, tent revivals. And his dad would preach over a number of evenings or something, and then at the end of it, he would walk down in front of the podium. 
and he would stretch his arms out. He would look into the face of the people that were there and he would start to sing this hymn. It was written in the 1880s. Softly and tenderly Jesus is calling Calling for you and for me See on the portals He's waiting and watching Watching for you and for me Come home, come home. Ye who are weary, come home. Softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling. Calling, O sinners, come home. That's the plea of Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. Stop drifting. Come home. Pay attention. If you've been walking with Jesus for a long time, keep paying attention. Keep being arrested and captivated by the beauty of who Jesus Christ is. If you're someone who's never actually turned and looked into the face of the Savior... Softly and tenderly, he is calling you. Come home. Amen. Amen. Let's sing together. Let's stand.